0: Welcome back to another episode of Art in the Making, a podcast produced and hosted by me, Caroline Cook.
1: And me, Courtney McKee. This year's Conroy and Irby Programming Interns at the Hood Museum of Art at Dartmouth College.
0: This podcast is about how art's made. We'll be tracing the history of different materials used in the creation of art through the ages, and we'll highlight pieces in the Hood's collection that you can see for yourself.
1: Last time we looked at metalwork, which is a medium that could be hard to conceptualize in terms of how exactly it goes from raw material to finished object. Now that we've looked at stone and metal, two foundational media for literally (laughs) millennia of art, we can move on to something a little more colorful.
0: That's right. Today, we're going to look at pigmentation, the different materials used to add color to art, and the different techniques of
1: applying it. It's actually a bit more complicated than you might think and took a lot of effort. Yeah. Paint hasn't always been around, and neither has the whole rainbow of colors available to us today.
0: Okay, well, the colors have been around, obviously. Yeah.
1: (laughs) But we didn't know how to use them, where to find them. Yeah. And that's the part we're going to talk about today. Let's go. Pretty
0: much as long as humans have been making art, we've been looking for ways to add color to the world around us. I mean, just look at the cave paintings at Lascaux in southwestern France, which you might be able to picture even if you don't know that much about ancient art. They're dated to maybe as old as 20,000 years ago, and they're used as an example of what early artistic
1: expression looked like. Yeah, dozens of animals and one human are (laughs) colorfully depicted in various situations and perspectives or even combinations of perspectives so that both horns on an animal Mm -hmm. might be visible while the flank and front and rear legs (laughs) are also in view. Some are large and some are small. Some are just outlines and some are fully filled in. Yeah, some are packed in
0: groups and scenes and others float on a horizon all their own. There are around 600 paintings in multiple chambers, clearly made by multiple artists over a long period of time.
1: The Lascaux Caves are incredibly famous as one of the earliest examples of humanity's urge toward creative expression. But what did our ancient ancestors use to get those colors on the cave walls? You know, it's a really good question.
0: You might see that they're working with a very limited color palette. These are mineral-based colors, so they're dark, and earth-toned, as opposed to the brighter colors that come from chemicals or even plant-based dyes much later.
1: Yeah, we pretty much only see red, yellow, and black Mm. in some variation. And the red comes from hematite, which is a mineral found in red clays. The yellow comes from limonite, which would have probably come from the soil, Mm -hmm. and then the black likely comes from charcoal.
0: Yeah, right, so these minerals would have been readily available and were likely applied directly to the wall with a handful of moss or hair or
1: even a piece of the mineral itself. Mm -hmm. For larger areas, like the entire side of an animal, it's likely that these prehistoric artists blew the pigment through a tube, (laughs) like the hollowed out bones that have been found in the caves. That sounds really tricky. Yeah, it must have been. So having control over the application of the pigment, being precise and fine with lines, wasn't the primary concern. Mm. Distinguishing this shape from that one in whatever colors we have on hand, that's what took priority, even above choosing a realistic color that matches reality, which also leaves room for the all-important early artistic expression that the Lascaux Caves display.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So from the earth tone pigments that we could derive from surrounding materials, we soon discovered processes that opened up more of the color wheel, furthering the possibilities of artistic expression.
1: Around 3000 BCE, ancient Egyptians heated together quartz sand, a copper compound which could have come either from copper ore or scraps of bronze, Mm. and some alkali, which was either sourced from natron, a compound found in dried-up salty lake beds, or from the ashes of salt-tolerant plants.
0: Yeah, this combination created a vivid blue color, known alternatively as Egyptian blue, cerulean, or artificial lapis lazuli, as opposed to the real lapis lazuli, which is a rare, expensive gemstone that was mined in what what is now Afghanistan. And it was used for everything!
1: Really? I'm trying to remember where I might have seen
0: it. Well, interestingly, Egyptian blue can be detected by near-infrared radiation, even when the blue color is not visible to the naked eye. So it was this technique that allowed researchers to discover that the controversial Elgin marbles housed in the British Museum in London that once decorated the Parthenon in the Athenian Acropolis were originally painted with pigments like Egyptian blue instead of left white as we previously thought. That's so interesting. Yeah.
1: Yeah, infrared imaging has also revealed that from its ancient origins, Egyptian blue was used as a pigment as recently as the 16th century.
0: That is one long-lasting pigment.
1: Yeah, definitely. Okay,
0: but how did the Greeks get that Egyptian blue color onto their smooth marble sculptures? I
1: mean, how would it not just slide right off? Yeah, that's a good question. Those pigments we discussed would have been mixed with something easily accessible and fairly sticky, (laughs) like eggs or beeswax.
0: It's so difficult to picture them painted. I'm used to seeing monochrome sculpture, white marble or black onyx or maybe even wood.
1: Yeah, so it's not just
0: ancient Greek sculpture. Maybe our view of everything in the past is a little faded. Yeah, it's very likely that though those are the colors that you're seeing now in a museum, the past really wasn't as sepia-toned as we think it is. Let's look at something from the Hood's collection so you can see what
1: we're talking about. Sure.
0: I know in our first episode, we already looked at the Assyrian reliefs from the Northwest Palace of King asher but they're actually a really good example of this phenomenon of faded pigments. Wait, they were painted? Yup, the whole thing. In really brilliant colors, too. The colors are mostly gone today, but if you look closely, you might be able to see some traces of something sort of reddish on one of the figure's sandals. It's pretty hard to see.
1: I bet they looked really different painted those larger-than-life figures would really fly off the backdrop. Yeah. So,
0: Courtney, can we look at something that actually still has its color?
1: Hmm. What about the public fountain from the Ottoman Empire?
0: That sounds good. It's actually located in the gallery right near the Assyrian reliefs, so you can see how differently the colors were preserved.
1: Right. As the name suggests, this was a public fountain, so it had to be a water-resistant vessel. The tiles are shaped with a rectangular base and an onion-shaped top and painted with complex floral patterns and an inscription in Arabic in the upper portion. Yeah, These are glazed ceramic tiles, a process that seals in those bright colors of green, teal, red, and navy blue. I think it's amazing how much detail is still legible, like the incredibly intricate floral designs that are mixed in with the text.
0: I totally agree. It must've taken so much planning and precision to make one continuous design span all these separate tiles. I mean, you barely notice the breaks between the individual tiles. This piece is about six feet tall and three feet wide. So it's really not small, but the level of detail on each of these tiles, I mean, it's almost distinguishable by brushstroke. Some of the lines are so narrow, tracing a leaf or a flower petal or another decoration. I mean, there's no way that it's more than one brush wide.
1: This piece is probably from around 1600, though we're not exactly sure. Right. That might sound pretty old, but it's a long time after the Parthenon. (laughs) Yeah. So what we're seeing is that the longer pigmentation techniques are around, the more precise they get.
0: Right, it's also interesting that these are the same colors that were popular throughout all these different cultures.
1: Yeah, and after a while, techniques and materials spread. The Ottoman Empire was extensive enough that they could trade for top-of-the-line art materials. And
0: once again we see that among pigments top of the line just meant blue for a really (laughs) long time this is still a relatively limited color palette by mostly cool tones that was probably by choice since by this time pigmentation had advanced enough that most colors were replicable
1: but this precision that we're seeing here is the most important suggestion of advancement when we look at later techniques like paint which we'll cover in another episode We'll see how the kinds of runny or sticky things you mix with the pigment change what you can do with it.
0: Here, I think this piece is so brilliantly colored because it's ceramic tile.
1: Ceramics are super interesting, so we'll talk about them in more detail in our next episode. This multi-step process that seals in all those beautiful colors in a glass-like shell is tricky to learn, but definitely worth the time.
0: I'm so excited to talk more about ceramics, and this piece especially. I mean, it's really mesmerizing, Mm -hmm. and I stop and study it every time I visit the hood.
1: Let's make something clear, though. The alchemy involved in making pigments wasn't always as pain-free as for (laughs) Egyptian blue.
0: Wait, what do you mean?
1: Well, while the only things used for Egyptian blue were chemicals and plants, the process to make a dye called Tyrian purple involved the crushing of a kind of marine snail called Bolinus brandaris, (laughs) also known as the purple dimurex or the spiny dimurex. When the Bolinus brandaris is attacked, it releases a defensive mucus from its endocrine glands, which turns purple when exposed to the air. This mucus was used as a dye.
0: The mauve-colored pigment was discovered in Phoenicia around 1500 BCE and was used until 1453 CE. At first, they would squeeze the snails one by one to release a few drops of pigment. But because this was so incredibly time consuming, they soon discovered that they could crush the
1: snails by the thousands. Which came in handy because incredibly, it took 10,000 of these snails to produce one gram of dye.
0: Because of this, the pigment was very expensive and thus exclusive to those who could afford it, like nobles and the clergy. In ancient Rome, this was taken even further. Purple could only be worn by those with royal blood. Mm. For these reasons, purple came to be associated with royalty and riches.
1: Nowadays, purple isn't made by crushing sea creatures. (laughs) Don't worry. (laughs) Most or all of the purples you see are likely from a synthetic dye. There's actually a really interesting story to how a synthetic purple dye was first discovered. At the risk of this just being a chemistry lesson, (laughs) I'll encourage you to look it up if you're interested.
0: Probably a good idea. An example of the purple dye in use is found in the Vienna Genesis, currently housed in the Austrian National Library. It's one of the oldest surviving illustrated manuscripts in existence today. It was produced in Syria in the 6th century from vellum, which is a type of parchment made from calfskin. The vellum was originally dyed purple, and the script was written in silver ink, making for a rich, elite product made for a very wealthy person.
1: Over time, the dye has faded to an orange-reddish-purple, but it's a great example of the ostentatious use purple dye was put to, as each page of the book was individually dyed purple for the purpose of display.
0: And it's yet another example of how skewed our view is of the past. The colors have faded, but they were brilliant ones.
1: So we've talked a lot about colors enhancing the image that the artist was already trying to create. But what about when color is the experience?
0: Exactly. Imagine, if you can, a flat 57 by 45 wooden board, totally covered in a very deep ultramarine blue. There's an arc of 10 sea sponges, totally saturated with this color, and blue pebbles covering the surface.
1: If you think about it, blues are going to be slightly cooler on the yellower or tealer side, or slightly warmer on the redder, purpler side. Ultramarine falls more in the middle, and though it's probably on the purpler side than yellow, it's still a kind of blue that almost feels cold when you look at it. There's so much depth to it and no hint of another color. It's fully opaque, no light coming in and distorting it.
0: Where does this blue take you? For me, deep, sort of darker colors like this quiet my brain. There's lots of textures on this board to consider what this color is and what it looks like in highlights and shadows. You can see the surface of the color. And if you stay there long enough, you can start to fall into it too.
1: Mm. Yeah, this piece is called Blue Monochrome Sponge Relief, and it's by Yves Klein. He was a French artist who lived in the early 20th century. He experimented with monochromatic paintings, which means the piece is composed of only one color.
0: It might sound simple, but it forces you to consider other things like shape and especially texture.
1: After a lot of experimentation over the years, Klein developed this very deep ultramarine pigment that was actually named after him. They call it International Klein Blue. Yeah, for Klein, this color signified the summer vacations of his youth. And it totally dominated the rest of his work for the remainder of his career.
0: But maybe this painting makes you think of something else entirely. That's the point of a piece like this. It allows you to consider what associations you have with color and where those memories and sensations take you.
1: So that's our crash course on pigmentation. Our verdict? We may be taking that rainbow of colorful paints in an art classroom for granted. Yeah, if you've ever mixed paints as a kid and been able to produce
0: any color you could think of, well, now you know just how long it took to make that rainbow available at your
1: fingertips. And now you know some of the places that those colors come from.
0: Yeah, I mean, I definitely didn't think we'd be talking about snails today. You mean Molina's Brandaris. Right, that's what I said, snails. (sighs) Join us next time as we look at the evolution of ceramics what they are, how they're made, and why they've had such significance for so many different cultures.
1: I'm excited. Me
0: too. See you then. Bye.